Well, this is a beautiful day for a whole lot of reasons. You know, as we, as we look at what God's doing amongst us, we praise him, we celebrate, and, uh, and that's just one of the thrills of being together as a church family. Let me ask you a question here. What do you think of confetti? You know, it's pretty. We like it at, fe- at parades, don't we? I mean, parades, are just, it's wonderful. Maybe you'll remember the, the San Francisco Giants as they celebrated their 2012 World Series victory with that festive parade down Market Street. And that course, it culminated as, as, with a massive, massive just party right in front of City Hall. And, um, but here's the thing, you know, as beautiful as confetti is and as much as, as we enjoy seeing it, it's actually not a great thing to use as a framework to build a building, right? Like, there are things you would not use confetti for. You know, as we talk about um, our modern world, it's really interesting because our modern world kind of, kind of does that a lot. You might think, well, how is that? Well, really, our modern world does that in the way everyone tries to live independent from God. Trying to live independently from God is kind of like taking confetti and using it to build your house, to build a structure. And author William Donnelly refers to it as the autonomy generation. That's what he would call us. We are the autonomy generation. And he wrote a book about it. And interestingly enough, the title of the book is what? Confetti Generation. And here's the idea. You know, since, since really to these days, especially, we live without any external center on which to get our bearings, or to base things on, or to construct things on. And so our experience becomes a lot like confetti. You just think of all these different experiences. A concert, a bank robbery, political defeats, congressional scandals, terrorist threats, the stock market performance, interest rates, gas prices, whatever it would be. These are all separate, disconnected, fluttering things that kind of fly about in our lives in a completely random way, and there's no way to make sense of the picture. We really can't even take everything into account and kind of put it into any kind of framework. We can't really see here then what's true or what's not true. Uh, Author David Wells, in referring to that work from um, Confetti Generation, he, he writes this. He says, ours is now a centerless universe. We have no map, and even if we did, we could not get our bearings. We have no purpose larger than ourselves. He goes on to explain, in the absence of a compelling external authority that enables us to draw the line confidently between right and wrong, true and false, we are left to fumble about with only our feelings to guide us. And are these feelings not often driven by self-desire and self-justification? Feelings are notoriously unreliable as a guide to belief or behavior. And the reality is is we need a center of the universe. We need a center of gravity. And where is that to be found exactly? Well, that's what the Apostle Paul is addressing in the book of 1 Corinthians. And we find ourselves, after many weeks, coming back to this fantastic book. If you were with us uh, back then, you might recall that Paul is writing to a church that's super arrogant, super divided. Sadly, they're even divided over the gifts that God's given them for the purpose of, of building one another up. They, they've, they've fallen into all these different thoughts and ideas 
that end up actually just being false criteria for true spirituality. That's kind of like the ongoing thread through the whole book. So the married are saying, you know, to be really spiritual, we have to abstain from sexual intimacy. And Paul writes, no. Uh, the, single are, the singles amongst them are saying, to be really spiritual, we have to be married. And some of the married are saying, you know, to be really spiritual, I should be single again. And then some of certain gifts are saying, to be really spiritual, you have to have my gift or you're not very valuable. And so from chapter 8 on, this idea of addressing these false criteria for true spirituality focuses in on a, on a major issue of that time, which was food sacrifice to idols. And, and that became a major focus. Uh, why? Well, because the, the, the food in the marketplace uh, that was least expensive, the meat that you could buy for the best price, you know, they, they didn't have Safeway, obviously, but if you walk into Safeway and they got, you know, the special, and you're like, hey... Look, beef is only 59 bucks a pound. That's pretty, no, I'm kidding, right? But, but you know what I mean, right? It's like, whoa, it's a good deal. I should grab this. Well, for them, it was typically the meat sacrificed to an idol. But then, of course, that evolved into other questions. Like, can I do that? I'm a Christian now. Especially if you're in Corinth and you had been worshiping these idols. And now you're saying, no, I'm not. I'm turning away from that. I'm walking with the Lord. You could see the tension, right? Like, well, wait a minute. That was sacrificed to an idol. What do I do? And, and then, of course, the way these temples were set up, they often had little rooms underneath the temple where people would enjoy a meal together after that worship time. And so you're actually in the temple having a meal with others eating this meat. And so there were, there was a big issue. And, and so now, you know, Paul has addressed that. Uh, he actually described very clearly how uh, you must not participate at the temple in those gatherings because what you're doing is you're associating with an idol. And as Paul left it off in verse 22, do we want to provoke the Lord to jealousy? He cites a bunch of Old Testament situations that happened amongst God's people and he goes, do you want to incite God to jealousy? You don't want to. Trust me, he's saying. Why? Because we're not stronger than him, are we? And the answer is no. Um, side note, I find it very fascinating, and I did not plan this out, that we concluded that section on do we want to provoke the Lord to jealousy? And then we spent several weeks in the book of Hosea describing what? God's holy jealousy. That's just the Lord. God is guiding us in terms of what we talk about. And now here we are, and we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 10, verses, verse 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, because this is the word of God and we want to honor the Lord in receiving it, would you please stand and follow along as I read? First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. All things are lawful, but all, not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that's sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this meat is meat sacrificed to idols, then don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean not your own conscience, but for the others, for why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? 
whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts to you, that we would receive from your word that which your spirit is teaching us in this moment. Lord, protect us from empty habit. Protect us from just going through the motions without understanding what's, what's happening here. As we're in your word, we are with you and you are speaking to us. Give us soft hearts. Cause us to be on the edge of our seats as we desire to love you and to glorify you and to please you with our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So this message is truly a message for the confetti generation. It's a message for us. And, and there's several things Paul's developed here in this section. And, and the first would be, would be this. He's been talking about what our real center of gravity is from chapter 8 through to here. And we find that because Jesus is our true center of gravity, we are free to seek the good of others more than ourselves. Isn't that wonderful? Get this. Not only is it you shouldn't live for you. You know what? You don't have to live for you. You're free to not live for you. Wow, that is a blessing. Because really, when we put ourselves at the center of our universe, you know what happens? Our universe collapses. Because we are not designed to bear that weight. So Jesus actually is our center of gravity. If you've come to Christ, if you've trusted in him, that's you. So in light of that truth, you're free. But that brings up a question. How can we tell if we're actually living like this? Like, how do we know if I'm really living out of this Christ-centered and thereby freed place to love others? And that's what we find here in this passage. Because when we genuinely seek the good of others more than ourselves, it'll show up in different ways. And the first way we find is this. When we genuinely seek the good of others more than ourselves, we will build them up. We find that in verses 23 and 24. Uh, Paul starts here by saying, all things are lawful. He's quoting them. You might recall earlier in in, in chapter 7, he did the same thing, and in chapter 8 as well. Um, So one of the earlier quotes was, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. That's what they said. And that was when, again, married couples were abstaining from intimacy together. And Paul's going, cut it out. That is not more spiritual at all. Well, here, the quote is, all things are lawful. And you can kind of hear the puffiness of that, you know, the pride of that statement. That's right. I can do anything because I'm free. And Paul takes that phrase and he goes, okay, I'll take your phrase. I'll quote you back. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. In other words, not all things actually bring gain Maybe you're able to do it, but doesn't mean it's profitable. It's a good thing. It's bringing fruit. And then he re- says it again. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Fascinating word. Literally means to build up. That's what it means to edify. Now, the idea is if, you know, you, you kind of go into these areas that are arid and dry. We've, we were driving out past a Byron Road, Byron Highway out there, you know, on the way over to Tracy, 
and I can't believe all the construction that's happening. You know, dirt, 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 and then boom, houses. <laughs> You're going, what happened? And then actually, in one place, we saw dirt, 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 boom, stalled housing project. It was kind of sad. Like, it was just sort of like wood. It's been sitting there for a while. But the point is, that's what it means to edify, to build up. And that's what we're called to do. And so we, we, we find here that what's really profitable, what, what really is, is gain with your freedom, rather than, than taking your freedom and flaunting it and saying, look what I can do, it's how can I best care for my brother or sister? How can I build them up? And this is getting down to really core questions, like what's really profitable? What's really valuable here? Um, this is, we find that this is not life that's just about our own good. And, and we find that this becomes a very objective kind of grid for making decisions, for decision-making, for choices, because it doesn't really depend upon me. It's more dependent upon, wait, how can I best build up this other person? How can I care for this person? How, how can I make sure that they are growing, especially growing in the love and knowledge of Christ? That's a fascinating way to approach decision-making. And I think a lot of times we don't think like that. I think our default, especially, again, living in the confetti generation, the default is more, I'm just going to make choices that benefit me because I want to do that. And sometimes it's even borderline choices where I'm like, I'm not sure about it, but I can rationalize it pretty well. You know, I can make it okay. I mean, we do it on trivial levels. We do it on, on big levels. I mean, I, look, I'm first to say, I'm eating ice cream. Okay, milk group. <laughs> Great. You know, vitamin D, I'm eating something healthy, right? <laughs> It's like, nice try, buddy. No, it doesn't, doesn't work like that. But we do that with our decisions as well. How would things change if we actually lived like this, with this different focus? What would that do in our daily life? Would, would it affect the way we commute to work? Would it affect the way we interact with others in the marketplace? You know, maybe you're standing in line and like me, I think I mentioned this before, I have the knack. Don't ever shop next to me because whatever line I'm in, that's the slowest checker, guarantee you. I have the gift. That's what's going to happen to you. But in those moments, what if we're thinking along the lines of how can I, so build up. It applies to believers and unbelievers, right? If it's someone who knows Jesus, what decisions, what choices can I make? What can I do to help this person grow? especially when it comes to area of, areas of my preference, what I think should happen, what I want to happen, what I know should happen. Well, maybe, how, how do I care for others in this? It's a different focus. It's a different approach. Uh, we don't have time to go into it much more, but I, but I would encourage you to think about your decisions in the week ahead and ask yourself this question, what choice would I make in whatever this area is if I'm either building up a brother or sister in Jesus or if I'm helping someone who doesn't, doesn't yet know Jesus to draw nearer to God, to grow closer to him? How does that affect my decision? And if that hasn't even crossed your mind, the Lord's telling us today it needs to. When we genuinely seek the good of others more than ourselves, we're going to not only build them up, but secondly, we're also going to navigate the gray for their growth. We're going to navigate the gray for their growth. We find that in verses 25 through 30. 
Here, here Paul really actually says something, and you're kind of like, if, if you're on the side of the ultra, ultra freedom, all things are lawful, right? If you're in that camp, when, when he reads this, you can almost hear them there in the congregation going, yes, I knew it. Because he says, eat anything that's sold in the marketplace without asking questions for conscience sake. Yes. You know, the guy looks at the wife, right, baby, tri-tip tonight. We're on. You know, I mean, that's, that's kind of it. It's like there's this, you can almost hear it. And yet, even as he describes this, he's going to go in a direction that we don't expect. This, this is a gray area. What do I mean by gray? When I'm using the term gray, I'm not saying, yeah, that's right, there's no way you can know. It's just gray. People use, you know, it's a gray area in that way. Well, forget it. You can't know. It's gray. That's not how the Bible describes gray areas. What we're saying with a gray area is this. You're navigating as a believer through areas that are not immediately clear. There are matters of conscience that had to do that. You'll recall over the past couple of years, we talked through a lot of gray areas together, and we talked about matters of conscience a lot. Maybe you'll remember those things when it came to the, the, the pandemic, how you're going to respond to the pandemic, how you're going to respond to vaccines, how you're going to do... That's all, those are all matters of conscience. And the only thing we said, the only thing we're going to be dogmatic about is that we're not going to be judging one another's conscience before God. On that, we will be very, very you know, stringent. But other than that, it's, it's an individual person's. He, he or she needs to go before God and make a decision. So there are gray areas. But here, what's interesting is this navigation of this gray area has a purpose, and it's for the growth of others. So here he goes. Hey, you find meat sold in the marketplace? Eat it. Don't even ask a question for conscience sake. And he gives a beautiful principle in verse 26. He quotes Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord and all is the Lord's and all it contains. And, and you're kind of like going, wow, that is such a beautiful, deep reality. God made everything. And you know what's implicit in this statement? Not only did God make everything, he made it to be enjoyed. Wow. So, so we've got, you know, this, this sort of, um, I don't know, p- people kind of have a way of dividing up the world into these little compartments. Like, well, this is God's thing, and this is just something else, and this belongs to the realm of science, and this belongs to the realm of entertainment, and this belongs to the realm of, you know, my, my personal, you know, kind of what I want to do. And, and then this over here is, is law, and then over here, you know, you've got this. And, and this verse is saying, all of it is God's. All of it. In addition to that, not only is all of it God's, but it's all been given for you to enjoy it with gratitude towards him. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. Um, rather than kind of dividing up the world into these false categories, we find, no, no, God made the world, even in its fall, fallen, the current fallen, distorted form, God made it, it's good, it should be approached as God's gift to humanity. And that means we, we're to care for it. It means the Bible tells us we're we are to have a dominion over it. We're also to give thanks for it. And we're also before God to, to, to enjoy his creation. And that includes food and drink. It is, it's, it's to be enjoyed with gratitude to him. And, and so he goes on. But, but then notice in verse 28, or sorry, verse 27, he then goes on to say, hey, hey, what if an unbeliever invites you over for dinner? And first of all, you got to love that, right? Why? Well, because here we find 
first century church, it was a common occurrence for people who love Jesus and know Jesus to gather for meals with people who don't. That was just normal. That's a great thing. It's just kind of doing life together. Hey, you got to eat. I got to eat. We can eat together. That's a good idea. That's another thing for us to ask ourselves. You know, how, are, are we sharing meals? Are we enjoying life alongside of those who have not yet come to Jesus? Is that a part of what we're doing? Just kind of the normal rhythm of life. And if it isn't, it ought to be. And you might be looking at me going, Chris, are you crazy? Don't you know I have kids in soccer right now? Like, come on. And then when summer comes, guess what we're going to do? Swim team. Swim team is like the parental vortex, man. We've been in that one. You're going to be busy. But the point of this is not so much, oh, that's right, you've got to separate from that, separate from that. You've got to eke out this time to have meals with those who are not yet walking with Jesus. No. Guess what? You're in those contexts. Look, stand on the, on the side of the soccer field and look around. There are plenty of people there who don't yet walk with Christ. Okay, there you go. Um, you're going to eat, right? Yeah, you've got a bunch of kids playing soccer. Trust me, you're going to eat. Well, why not just eat with them? Just, it's just a matter of changing focus a little bit. Um, Taco Bell is just as expensive for you together with other people as it is for you by yourself, right? You might think, I can't have them over. Okay, don't have them over. Just go. Just go somewhere. But the point would be that that was normal. If one of the believers invites you and you want to go, that's another thing. I love that. Hey, if the unbeliever invites you and you want to go, go. There's very much a, why? Because you would enjoy their company. You get to be together. You get to talk. It's a good thing. This, this isn't sort of like a, that's right, you've got to go because you've got to have this little checkbox where I talked with an unbeliever. That's not it. It's just normal. We're just doing life together. Neighbors, family, friends, coworkers, fellow students. And then he goes on to say, if they invite you, Eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Whatever it is, go ahead and eat it. Go ahead. And, and so again, there's this way in which Paul is, is not being overly scrupulous. He's not being legalistic. He's not being like, well, you know, Christians don't do that. You know, that's, not the, that's not the spirit here. The spirit is, hey, you're going to go. You're going to be with them. There's going to be food. You need food. They need food. Eat the food. Enjoy the time together. But then notice this. Verse 28 starts with a very important word. But. Now we see a qualifier. Why? Because there's nuance to the situation. There's a way that needs to be navigated here. It's not just simply, yeah, if you're free, do it. No, there are things you need to take into account in wisdom to navigate through the gray. And you want to navigate through the gray in a biblical way. And so what does he say? If anyone says to you, this meat's been sacrificed to idols, don't eat it. <laughs> What's he talking about? Well, here's the thing. We don't know who's bringing up this, this statement. It could be um, an unbeliever who's gathered there as well. It could be a believer. Either way, they're looking at you and there's somehow a sense in their conscience 
The conscience, by the way, is that voice that says, hey, this is right, good job, and this is not a good idea, don't do it, this is wrong. So in their conscience, they're going, this doesn't seem right. And right there, Paul's like, that's your cue. Biblical wisdom says, don't eat it. And and you might be there going, but but it was barbecue short ribs, man. Like, that's my favorite. Yeah, but you're not the point. It's not about you. It's not about your desires. It's not about your preferences. It's about someone else's walk with God. It's because you want them to grow. And their spiritual growth, be it whether they're a believer or whether they're someone who has not yet come to Christ, either way, you want them to grow closer to God. And so the ribs on the barbecue are nowhere near as important as where they're at with the Lord. And so what do you do? You abstain. And then Paul really clarifies it. He really hits it home. Look at what he says. Don't eat it. Verse 28. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. And then Paul knows, oh wait, they're going to think maybe their own conscience. And so he clarifies even further in, in 29. I don't mean your own conscience. Again, it's not about you. No, for the others. For their conscience' sake, abstain from your freedom. Brothers and sisters, we can lay aside our rights for the purpose of others growing in their walk with the Lord. And that's a beautiful thing. By the way, as Americans, that can rub us the wrong way, doesn't it? So grateful for our country, so grateful for the freedoms we enjoy here. If you travel around the different parts of the world, at any time, you recognize God's kindness to us as a country. And you also recognize how much beautiful, wonderful gospel good is happening throughout the world, both for physical needs and spiritual needs, because of the way God's blessed our country. We have much to be thankful for. But let's be very careful that we don't take our rights and make them an idol. We need to be asking this question. We're navigating through the grave for the growth of others. And so he says, I don't mean for your own conscience, but for the others. I love this concluding question. You can almost, when these questions come from Paul, you can almost tell it's, it's sort of like he's been speaking these things, he's been preaching these things, he's been sharing these things throughout the kind of public life of the ancient world. In, in you know, synagogues, he's been preaching on street corners, he's been sharing all these different things. And you can kind of see these are questions people would have shouted back to him. And so here's, here's the question. Why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? Wait, you've just said I'm free. I'm free. Why would my freedom be judged by someone else's conscience? And, and then, then the argument goes on, verse 30. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? So in other words, Paul, you just quoted Psalm uh, the Psalms, you just quoted there in Psalm 24, or 24, 1, you know, the earth is all the Lord's and all contains and I'm giving thanks to that. So I'm actually in the process of thanking God for his provision and thanks and now someone else has a different view of conscience and now I'm slandered for that? That seems wrong. But Paul disarms the whole thing in the next moment. 
And, and in doing so, in the next verse, we find that when we genuinely seek to build up the good of others more than ourselves, we're not only going to build them up, we're not only going to navigate the grave for their growth, but we're also going to show God's glory in all things. Look at how Paul answers that question. This, this answer to that question is, show, is so sharp and so kind of like, wait, are you sure it's an answer to that question? It's almost like disjointed that we think of it as an independent thing. But no, this is, this is Paul's answer to that question. So why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Give me an answer, Paul. And here's his response. Whether then you eat or drink or for whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Paul, you didn't answer my question. Yeah, I did. It's not about you. It's about God's glory. If Jesus is the center of gravity, if he's the center of all things in your life, your preferences are not what you live for. This is not really an easy answer for modern ears to hear. So instead of it being about you, instead of it being about me, it's about two other things. God's glory and the salvation of other people. That's what it's about. Realize this is not an argument from, from the place of sort of this stern, austere, so just shut up. Stop thinking about yourself. That's not what it is. You know what it is? God has so lavishly loved you. He has so overwhelmingly given you his grace and his son. He has so completely and fully rescued you, saved you, set you apart, blessed you by his word, his truth, his life. You are so cared for and loved and already overflowing that you don't have to center your life on you because you have more. You have him. And so because of that, it's about God's glory and the salvation of others. And that's amazing. You, you know what's amazing about this statement? There's a lot of things, but one thing that really stands out to me, this phrase automatically means there is no such thing as worship being a one-day-a-week activity. No such thing. All is to the glory of God. That means all is worship unto God. That means home, school, work, among family, neighbors, coworkers, fellow students. It means on your soccer team, at the farmer's market, standing in line at Safeway with your fantasy. means when you're playing fantasy football, you're on the computer. Yeah, I'm looking at you people. I know who you are. I know what you're doing. But all of it is for God's glory. And it can be enjoyed as a gift from God. And all of it is to be offered to him in worship. But, but, but do we really see this? How freeing, how transforming, how beautiful, and yet how sobering it is also. We can begin to live our lives more aware of this. And if we can, God's grace now begins to saturate in and through our minds and our hearts and our thoughts and our words and our actions in such a way 
that, that we're worshiping God all week. We're being used by him in the lives of others. Day to day, moment to moment. We're truly living as Jesus calls us to as lights in a dark place where people see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. But the question is, how can we get there? How can we get our, into that place, so that beautiful, sobering place? How can we begin to actually live that way, aware of this life that God's called us to day in and day out? I think there's one word, one answer. Prayer. We need to enter each and every day, each and every moment even, walking with and in conversation with our Heavenly Father. That's what prayer is, talking with God. Here's the amazing thing. He actually wants to hear from us. <laughs> and and that, that means, you know, you're going, you're going prayerfully into all things. And maybe you're saying, Chris, are you telling me I've got to go prayerfully into my fantasy football picks? I'm saying Yes. You do. Yeah, because it's not simply your picks. I'm praying, oh, Lord, let my picks do well. By the way, you can pray that, I guess. But, but this passage is saying way more than that. This is saying, Lord, help me to have gospel shining moments and conversations with my fantasy football friends. Lord, when, when I'm home, when I'm at school, when I'm at work, when I'm among my family or when I'm interacting with my neighbors or, 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 or if I'm, you know, at some event or if I'm, I'm out and about, help me to see all of those moments, times, and places as acts of worship before you because they are. When we genuinely seek the good of others more than ourselves, we will not only build them up, navigate the grave for their growth, and show God's glory in all things. Lastly, we will also seek their profit in salvation. That's verses 32 of chapter 10 through 11, verse 1. He starts off by really saying three groups of people, Jews, Greeks, and the church of God. You know what? Those three, three groups covers everybody. In that time frame, that was everybody. And then he says, what does he say to do to everybody? Give no offense. And, and you know what? That, that phrase, we might understand that, but not grasp the nuance there because it might sound a little bit like, hey, so whatever you do, don't give any offense, as in just be nice to everybody. That's not what he's saying. Now, the, the, this statement has a lot more to do with, um, the word actually comes from the word to stumble. It was used previously, it'll be used again. The idea, ha- so it's, it's really communicating, don't cause someone to stumble. Don't be a stumbling block placed in the way, especially of the gospel in someone's life. Of course, Paul's been talking about this, as I mentioned, a lot already. But he's saying, don't be that. Don't be, don't be the one who, 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 who does that. Seek their profit in salvation, and in doing so, really be, be an on-ramp for the gospel rather than a roadblock for the gospel. Especially 
if it's your preferences that are causing you to be that roadblock. It's amazing that salvation is described here as profit, something you gain. You know, something everyone's looking for today. I don't know if you've seen, but the stock market, not doing so great. People are seeking profit there. Problem with that thing is it's like this. All over the place. What does Jesus tell us? You know, rust, moth can destroy, thieves break in and steal. There's a better treasure. There's a better kingdom to be part of. There's a better place to invest. And it's in Christ. His work his, his kingdom is coming. His kingdom has come as he came and declared himself. It was inaugurated as he rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and hell. He's coming again soon. And here's the thing. Unlike the current stock market, this is a sure bet. I still think of... Uh, Jim Elliot's quote there, he is, no, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So rather than seeking my, my own little preferential way, rather than making demands of the way I things, think things ought to go, Rather than standing on, on my rights, all that can be forsaken. And because of that, food offered to idols, he's saying to the Corinthians, should not be eaten in certain circumstances because no one should in any way encounter any kind of a hindrance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the question is, are we seeking the profit of others? Are we running towards that? Are we after that. This, this idea of other-centered living out of the sound, sure foundation with Jesus as our center of gravity is a theme we find throughout 1 Corinthians. We find it actually throughout the New Testament. Paul isn't even making this stuff up. He heard it from Jesus himself. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Is persecution your preference? No. Pray for them. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus also goes on to say in John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And by the way, this is what makes it a new commandment. Love one another just as I have loved you. Before it was, love your neighbor as yourself. Now Jesus is saying, uh-uh, it's love one another the way I loved you. And when that happens, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Paul is calling the Corinthians here to live in this way, not seeking his own profit, but their profit. What is that profit? That they may be saved. 
Is that how you're investing right now? Is that how you're spending your time? Is that how you're looking at the world around you? Is that how you're seeing your friends and family and those that God's placed into your life? This is a massive investment opportunity. Not for my profit, but for theirs. That they would know God through Christ. That they would gain much more than anything they could ever even imagine. That they could gain eternal life knowing God personally because of Jesus. Let's seek to live out this reality, not only today and not only in the week ahead, but every week the Lord gives us on this earth. For the salvation of many and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we we ask again that you would bring these things to rest in our hearts, that we would walk in a way that glorifies you. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our center of gravity. We don't have to live like the confetti generation, but centered on you and in the fullness that you give us because of your life, death, and resurrection, we now can live that others would know you. We ask that you would accomplish this. In your mighty name we ask, amen.